Uh, a significant number of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are songs of lament, both individual and communal laments. To lament is to express deep grief and sorrow in the face of living in a sin-broken world. And we cannot do justice to the book of Psalms unless we engage with the Psalms of lament. Next week, we're going to lament at the grief of our sin when we look at Psalm 130, but this week, we are just going to lament in Psalm 88. We're told at the start of this psalm, it was written by He-Man, not from Grayskull, but He-Man, a descendant of Korah from the Levites. Korah in number 17 was a very rebellious dude that Aaron and Moses had to deal with who was judged by God. But his descendants were quite remarkable. A number of the psalms were written by these descendants of Korah. And during David's reign, He-Man, along with other sons of Korah, like uh, Ethan and Asaph, became important song leaders in the worship at the tabernacle for the people of Israel. There's another term there, Mahaloth Leonoth, most likely refers to a stringed instrument. And the terms maskal and selah, as you can see in the psalm, are most likely musical terms. I'm going to pray and then we'll make a start. Let's pray. Gracious Father God, please help us to understand your word that we might know how to cry out to you when we live in a broken world. Please help me to speak your word faithfully, clearly, boldly, and with love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, most Hollywood movies have a three-act structure. In Act 1, you get the setup. In Act 2, the conflict or the confrontation. In Act 3, you get the resolution. And when we watch these three-act movies, we find them quite satisfying because often there's a feel-good, happy ending. Take, for example, The Lion King. Spoiler alert, but you've had 30 years to watch it, okay? Act 1, the setup. Simba, the, the, uh, Simba's father, the king, is killed by his uncle, but Simba is manipulated to think that he killed his father. Act two, the confrontation. Simba exiles himself and for years with his mates, he lives the Akuna Matata life until he finds out that the Lion Kingdom is in a terrible state under his uncle. Act three, the resolution. Simba confronts his uncle and his inner demons to take his rightful place as the new king. Satisfying, that's the end that we want. But what happens when the story finishes in Acts in Act 2, take, for example, The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars anthology. By the end of this movie, the good guys are bruised, are battered, they're captured, they're beating a retreat, and the arch-villain, Darth Vader, another spoiler or alert, okay, turns out to be the hero's father. The movie finishes in Act 2. It is the darkest of all the Star Wars movies, and for many diehard Star Wars fans, it is their favorite movie, because often that's what real life is like. It's dark, it's gritty, it's not feel-good, and sometimes you're left with more questions than answers, and Psalm 88 is just like this. It's a psalm that finishes in Act 2. It's the darkest of all the psalms because usually the psalms of, of lament usually finish with a resolution in Act 3, a renewed trust in God, a commitment to keep praising God. 
But listen to how Psalm 88 finishes in verse 18. As the psalmist says of God, you have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Why are we studying it? What value is in this psalm for us? Because Psalm 88 often reflects real life. Walter Brueggemann, one of the commentators on the book of Psalms, says this, Psalm 88 stands as a mark of realism of biblical faith. It has a pastoral use because there are situations in which easy, cheap talk of resolution must be avoided. You can't just say, be positive in real life. As we look at Psalm 88 today, we'll be looking at three things. God invites our honest cries. God is sovereign in our suffering. God is present in the darkness. Well, firstly, God invites our honest cries. Verse 1, Lord God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. A bit further in verse 9, my eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. It's clear right throughout this song that the author of this psalm is suffering. But in spite of the despair and distress he is experiencing, he continues to engage with God with desperate cries. Now, what exactly is the psalmist suffering? We're not told exactly, but here are some of the effects of his suffering. In verse 8, And 18, he says he's isolated. Friends, neighbors, loved ones are distanced from him. In fact, they find him repulsive, we're told in verse 8. He's been suffering for a long time, since his youth, in verse 15. And although he mentions God's wrath or anger upon him twice in this passage, there's no indication that he is suffering because he's done something wrong against God. How is the psalmist feeling? He feels like the living dead. Look at verse 3. For I've had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. In the Old Testament, Sheol is regarded as the place of the dead. Verse 4, I'm counted among those going down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I am like the slain lying in the grave, whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. Death was, and still is, a terrible state. Death means being cut off from every good gift of God. And for the psalmist, he feels like his life is not much better than death warmed up. He feels completely overwhelmed by grief and despair that he feels as good as dead. Can you relate to this? Can you think of a time in your life when you felt as good as dead? As though every ounce of oxygen had been sucked out of you in your suffering. Here's a list I compiled over the last few days of when you might feel like that. These are things I've either personally encountered in my ministry as a pastor or have happened to me or people close to me. The death of a spouse, a child, a sibling, a parent, sometimes very unexpected. 
the struggle with various forms of addiction, gambling, alcohol, drug, porn, exercise, food, the struggle of childlessness, the grief of miscarriage and stillbirth, the shock of an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy, the shame of abortion, the unfulfilled desire to get married, crippling loneliness as a single or married person, lifetime savings decimated by a global financial crisis, the embarrassment of a failed engagement, the ongoing impact of divorce, the daily dread of dealing with a controlling and abusive spouse, the bewilderment of a moral failure of a pastor, the disappointment of a business failure, the uncertainty of years of unresolved visa status, the toll of chronic mental and physical health problems, the ongoing weariness of degenerative disease, the guilt of unemployment, the helplessness when a child pushes you away, the agony of chronic pain, the, the fatigue of being a carer of others with illness or disability, the confusion of being scammed, the broken trust from sexual immorality inside and outside marriage, the fog of burnout, the grief of being persecuted for your faith, the sadness of seeing a loved one walk away from God, the complexity of an eating disorder, the hurt of being cut off from your family, the scars of childhood trauma, the heartache of unresolved conflict and broken relationship, the burden of financial debt, the pain of being bullied and racism, the shock of being diagnosed with a terminal disease, the devastation of a bushfire or flood, a global pandemic and everything that comes with it. It's quite a list, isn't it? So much grief, so much suffering. I'm sorry if I left your situation off the list. It was not intention. But can you relate to the psalmist when he says, my eyes are worn out from crying. I've had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. I want to share that list for two reasons. The first one is that everyone suffers, everyone grieves, and if you haven't yet, it's just a matter of time. And when you suffer, you will think that you're completely alone, completely unique, that no one can understand how you feel, and that's why I've thought each time that I'm alone when I've suffered one or more of those experiences on the list. Peter Adam a respected Melbourne pastor, preacher, my former Bible college principal, said this in an interview about living for many years with depression. The unmitigated gloom of Psalm 88 meant that someone else had these feelings too, so I was not alone, and God recognized that people felt like that sometimes. That was wonderful. I used to say the psalm again and again. When you feel alone in your grief, read Psalm 88 again and again because there was someone who felt like you do. The second reason I shared the list was to ask you, what do you do 
with your grief and the grief of others? Do you cry out to God like the psalmist? Because God recognizes your suffering, your grief. He welcomes your honest cries. That's why psalms of lament are in the Bible. How long, Lord? Why, Lord? Sometimes life sucks. And God wants you to cry out to him. Often we'll do everything else but pray. We'll do self-reliance, distraction, self-medication, blame, avoidance, pretending. No churches are full every Sunday of people pretending. How are you going? I'm fine. But we don't need to pretend, do we? I once attended the funeral of a young person who died unexpectedly, and it was quite a shock for all of us. And the young person was a follower of Christ. And at the funeral, from the very outset, the pastor and the family spoke of victory, of heaven, of celebration, almost as if they were rushing this young person to heaven. It felt like they wanted Act 3 to happen now because they didn't want to sit in the grief of Act 2. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is ministering to Mary upon the death of her brother Lazarus, Jesus saw her weeping and those close to her weeping. And what did Jesus do? He wept. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled, it says in the text, Jesus wept. He grieved with those who grieve. Yes, he was going to raise Lazarus, but he grieved firstly. Here's what I want you to do. When someone asks you after church, how are you going? If life sucks, I give you the permission to say this. To be honest, I feel like the living dead. I feel like death warmed up. Now, if you're the person they're talking to, then here's what I want you to say. Would you like to share more? And when they say yes, I want you to listen. I want you to really listen. And when you think you've listened enough, I want you to listen some more. And sometimes there's going to be big gaps of silence and you need to just sit there in the silence. Don't interrupt. Don't say, I know exactly how you feel because you don't. And after they finish sharing, I want you to ask this. Have you had the opportunity to talk to God about this? Chances are they haven't for many reasons. And then say this, can I pray for you right now? And 99% of the time they will say yes. And then pray something like this, dear Father God, things sound so hard right now for my friend, so unrelentless, so grieving. And I'm not sure exactly what to pray, but I know you, you know my friend, you love my friend. And I just want to cry to you for help, for her. Now, it's okay to bring a grieving person to one of the pastors, but you know what I just shared with you is exactly what I would do as a pastor, and I think you can do the same. God invites our honest cries. But here's the second point. God is sovereign in our suffering. Psalm 88 is a prayer of deep faith because the psalmist has this really deep view of God. He's wrestling with God's character. Look at verse 1 and see what he calls God. He says, Lord God of my salvation. In the midst of his grief, 
the psalmist is still clinging to the promise that God delivers his people. He is the God who saves his people, who keeps his promises. That's why he can still cry out to God with this glimmer of hope. But at the same time, the psalmist is also grappling with God's part in his suffering. Look at verse 6. You have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in and cannot go out. So in some way, he holds God responsible for his suffering and he brings his accusation before God verse 14 Lord why do you reject me why do you hide your face from me verse 16 your wrath sweeps over me your terrors destroy me verse 18 you have distanced loved one and neighbor from me the psalmist is wrestling with God's sovereignty God is in control and, and he's wrestling with his character. If, if God is in control of everything, if God is good, why does he allow me to suffer like this? The psalmist's experience runs right up against what he knows of God. I've been trying to live with a God in a godly way, in communion with him. Why does God bring this kind of suffering upon me as though I, I was the wicked? In the book of Job, we see the same struggle. Job is described as a man of integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet God allows Satan to bring terrible suffering into his life. He loses his children. He loses his livelihood and his possessions. He's inflicted with a terrible disease. And his wife and his three friends give him terrible advice. And throughout the book, Job wrestles with his friends and with God about why God has brought such suffering into his life. And by the end of the book, God actually says that Job spoke the truth about God, even though he didn't get everything right about God. Job actually needed to learn an important lesson. God is God and we are not. Job 42, verse 1, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I'd heard reports about you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. God, you are God. I am not. God is sovereign in our suffering. He has good plans and purposes. And often we don't understand them at the time. Sometimes we will later and sometimes we still struggle to know why. When Joseph went through episode after episode of suffering, God had a purpose to make him ruler over Egypt to save nations from famine. When God raised Babylon and Assyria to inflict suffering on his people, God had a purpose to punish and refine them. When God poured out his wrath 
on his servant son Jesus to suffer for us on the cross. God had a purpose to rescue a world full of rebels. As you keep wrestling with God in your suffering and in your grief, will you be like the psalmist? Will you be like Job? Will you be open to having your view of God changed, deepened? Do you believe that when you suffer through act two, God could make your view of him deeper and richer and better than if you hadn't gone through act two? Some of our brothers and sisters here in this church who have suffered greatly can say amen to that. God is sovereign. Even in our suffering, these griefs are not outside of his control and he can use them for your good to make you more and more like his son, Jesus. Author and Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie had three children. Two of her children, Hope and Gabriel, both died at six months old after being born with a rare genetic condition. And God has used her and her husband David's uh, suffering to help many people. In her book, Holding On To Hope, Nancy writes, Early on in my journey, I said to God, okay, if I have to go through this, then give me everything. Teach me everything you want to teach me through this. Don't let this incredible pain be wasted in my life. I know God has a purpose for allowing me this pain into my life, and that is for my ultimate good. So I can actually embrace my pain. Would you believe I can thank God for this bitter but rich experience. I can because I know God is good, that he allows good and bad into our lives, that we can trust him with both. The sovereign God can use act two in your life too. And finally, God is present in the darkness. In verse 10, the psalmist says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon, like Sheol, is another term for the place of the dead. Verse 12, Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? You know, sometimes when you suffer, you, you are left with more questions, aren't you? And that is how the psalmist finishes this psalm. God, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to keep your promise? Will my death be the final word? Or are you going to do something? Or I, am I going to remain lonely and full of grief until I die? Where is God in the darkness? On the worst and the best day in history, darkness fell on a lonely cross in Jerusalem. The Son of God, who was also God the Son, was nailed to that cross, abandoned, betrayed. In excruciating pain, he cried an honest cry to his Father God, A lament from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And in the darkness, Jesus carried all our sin upon himself. In the darkness, Jesus suffered God's wrath 
and he broke the power of sin. And in the darkness, Jesus' death crushed our death. And his final words on the cross before he died, Jesus said, it is finished. The power of sin is finished. The curse of death is finished. Suffering and grief are not the last word because darkness gives way to the light. The death and resurrection of Jesus is Act 3, God's final resolution. So that when you face the grief and suffering of your Act 2, when you sit in the darkness, you can know that today is not always. You can know that you are not alone. You can know that God is present in the darkness. And one day, because of the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, he will bring you into the glorious light of his throne in heaven, where he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Now, the clip I showed you at the start was of a young woman called Jane Marchewski. Performing under the stage name Nightbird, uh, last year in June on America's Got Talent, she performed a song she wrote called It's Okay. Uh, she re received a golden buzzer from Simon Cowell, meaning she went straight to the finals. And this came after four years of battling with breast cancer and twice being declared cancer-free in the breakdown of her marriage in 2020. And after all she went through, there was no Hollywood ending because by August, Jane was too unwell to perform in the semifinals. And then in February this year, Jane Nightbird Marchewski died at the age of 31. But it turns out that Jane was a follower of Jesus. My family of followers of Jesus. One of her final blog posts was entitled, God is on the bathroom floor. Jane writes, I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. Call, call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there, even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see him, look, look lower. God 
is on the bathroom floor. At her memorial service in March this year, Jane's sister, Caitlin, performed a song that she wrote for her sister, Jane. Here are some of the lyrics. Each morning, we're given a chance to say, thank you, Jesus, for giving this day. Life is a gift we're thankful for. We'll take miracles as they come. Stand in the darkness with hope and joy in the morning that comes. Someday our tears will pass away. Pain will be something that's lost. The strength that we find to walk each day is found at the foot of the cross. Sing hallelujah. Hallelujah to the king. He has given us every good thing. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, thank you for Psalm 88. Uh, many of us are going through an act two at the moment. All we have, all we will. And thank you that we, we can cry out to you in our grief, in our suffering. We will wrestle with you. We will struggle to know what your part in all this is. But we know that you're sovereign, that everything is in your control, and you have plans and purposes beyond which we can understand. Father God, at times when it seems that darkness has the final word, we thank you that Act 3 has already begun. That Jesus was also grieving and suffering and alone. And thank you for him, that he suffered and died for us, that we could look forward to that day when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So we pray, Lord Jesus, come. In his name, amen.